0: Terms and conditions apply.
1: This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History class.
2: United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN.
0: Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Allison Bree.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Big Money Energy, where we talk to super successful and self-made people to find out exactly how they did it, how they went from nothing to something. I'm Ryan Serhant, and today I'm joined by chairman and co-founder of Signature Bank, Scott Shea. We talk about what it takes to start a bank from the ground up, how religion could possibly tie into banking, and what influenced his decision to write a book about faith. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode. Today is a very, very special day because I'm not sitting down with just the insanely successful and intelligent Scott Shea, but I'm sitting down with somebody who started bank. And I want to I want to pick his brain a lot on that. But if you don't know Scott, you should. He is a leading businessman, author, speaker, co-founder and chairman of Signature Bank, which is one of the best and most notable banks in New York for private business owners. And not to mention, he's also an author, which we're going to get to. Uh, you're easily one of the most knowledgeable people in your field. And I'm honored to have you here. And for those of you who are also watching the podcast, uh, this is the first time we've done this in our first floor office. This is our conference room. We are all kind of back from COVID. Scott's here without a tie. We are living it up. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: And by the way, flattery will get you everywhere. So thanks for that wonderful yeah, introduction.
1: Listen, <laughs> I'm gonna say you look great. You're a great shape. You, you know you're killing it. It's awesome. It's great. You know, we negotiate deals. We uh, uh we do something called the positive sandwich. So the only way you can ever give anybody, not that there's negative information here, but the only way you ever give anybody tough information is you gotta, you gotta have have those positive pieces of bread there. And it works. The first question I have for you, which I think will really, really kick us off, is how do you start a bank? So I had this crazy idea in the 90s
3: that New York was overbranched but underbanked. There were plenty of big banks. There was J.P. Morgan, there was Chase, there was Manihani, there was Chemical, there was Long Island Trust, there was Westchester Trust. By the way, those and 19 other banks merged to create J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah, yeah, I remember. So, all these banks merging. And these big banks, these mega banks, they were good at servicing AT&T, PepsiCo, IBM. But I thought there was really a niche to focus on middle market, small and medium sized business. So, so we started a bank, not doing retail, not focusing on the big business. And people thought I was crazy. I mean, literally, I I, I had two co-founders and they just thought I was crazy at first. And, but I'm a persistent sort of guy. And did, you, did you work with these guys all together? So I knew them from Republic Bank. And when HSBC decided they were going to buy Republic Bank, the first thing I thought is this is an opportunity. I'm going to find these two guys because they're the best two guys at HSBC, and we're going to start a bank. Unfortunately, they didn't know that. That's what I thought. <laughs> and I we had breakfast, and they thought I was you know inviting them to breakfast over something else. And I said, let's start a bank.
1: You can ask; they'll they'll cheerfully admit they thought I was crazy. And uh, but it, I worked. I, on. And it's not something that that most people. I mean, you don't see new banks every day. You see new companies. You know. ah. Everyone's an entrepreneur right now, everybody. But you do not see people get together over breakfast and say, you know what we should do? We should start a bank. Yep. Very few. So what what did you guys, you know, because that was what? That was
3: 2001, though. This wasn't- This was when we had the breakfast. It was 1999. They thought, you know, let's try to buy a bank. Let's try to get some money together. We'll buy a small bank. We'll build it. And I said to them, Joe DiPaolo and John Tamperlane, who are my two partners and dear friends- uh, at this point, through dear, dear friends, that was our first real getting to know each other. I said, we got to start it from scratch because we got to make our own culture. The Big Bang culture, it's, it's just not going to get us where we need to go. We had applied to 19 different institutions. We started with a whiteboard. We're here in your conference room. The office that we started in was no more than a third of this size. And it had five people in it. No more. And there was a whiteboard. And we listed everything we needed to do. And we did it from from the number of adding machines to the you know what we needed in terms of people personnel people positions. We opened with five offices.
1: You opened what? You opened with five offices. Five offices, which is where did you? And sorry to cut you off. It just this is really interesting to me because we just started a brokerage you know, I've been with the same company for 12 years and throughout COVID. And, you know, this year we did the same thing. We had a big whiteboard. We had this little office with sheets of paper everywhere with all the things we need to do and all that. But starting a brokerage is very, very different. Yep. So where did you get the money together? Was it personal money? Did you go and raise money to be able to start a bank and to start lending? So that's a great question. So we thought about. Should we
3: raise personal money or do we need a big backer? Because if you start a bank, people are a little bit afraid to put money in your bank. At the time, the insured limit was $100,000. We wanted businesses to bank with us who generally have much more than $100,000 in the bank. So, we got a big bank backer. At the time, I was on the board of Bank Lim, which is the largest bank in Israel. And we convinced them to invest $42.5 million in our new bank. We started out first month, we lost two and a half million dollars. And 21 months later, we broke even. We cut our loss every month. The first month, we made like $2,000 and we were so happy. Like we were making, you know, like this little bit of money, but we were just deliriously thrilled. By month 34, we went public. So fast. We've never done an acquisition in the history of the bank. As we sit here today, as of last June, As of this past June 30th, we were a $61 billion bank. And every single person who has come in the door has opened an account with us because they want to open an account with us. We've done no acquisitions. So we haven't, we haven't, it's not like Chemical Bank got the, got the clients from Annie Hanny or Manufacturers Hanover. You have to want to join us. So at this point, I think the hypothesis that I thought, which is it was a need for a small and medium sized business bank in New York. I think the tentative conclusion is it's it's it was correct. Yeah, but you're not a retail bank. No, that's why most people haven't heard of us even right. though we're we're the biggest Because we're people the aren't largest your, you're not bank. going to your ATMs. We have them but they're on the 12th floor, the 18th floor. You will not even you you we have an office on Union Square. You won't even know it's there because you have to take an elevator up and if you're a private business rep you're happy doing it. We have an office south of you. Again, you've probably walked by it a thousand times on Broadway, yeah. but you're not gonna get in an elevator, go up to the twentieth floor, and uh find our office. We're not retail. Most of our clients who are retail clients are owners of private businesses that they already bank with us.
1: And so they're small businesses. Like what what's the biggest type of client you have and what's the smallest type?
3: Well, our sweet spot is 25 to 500 employee firms. That's our sweet spot. If you look, that's probably 85% of our clients. We have bigger, we have smaller. We'd be happy to bank you. You know, we're happy to bank anybody. No,
1: <laughs> but um, that's our sweet spot. That's where we're best. How has COVID been on the co-founder of a bank? So it was very strange
3: that before Governor Cuomo wrote the order closing, essentially shutting New York, I got a call from yeah, the we deputy- so I remember the day of a little bit before because I got a call from the deputy superintendent of banking in, in New York who said, this is going to come down, but don't forget you're an essential service. Sure. And it was very strange getting that call uh, because I knew we were an essential service. Money is important and the transfer of money is important, but we're not a hospital. We're not a doc- you know, we're not doctors. We're not, we're not, we didn't, I didn't conceptualize us in that way. But then when the shutdown happened, I realized how essential we were, in that we were getting calls immediately. We banked some hospitals in New York who immediately needed money. The people were coming in who were who were in serious having serious issues, and they needed to immediately have their lines expanded. I mean ultimately the government, the federal government gave the money and it all worked out fine. But not day one. We had All sorts of clients who had their supply chains from China disrupted. So in a day, they had paid for materials or final product in most places from China, and that was gone. It was shut off. Those products weren't getting in. So immediately, they had to go and try to get alternative products, buy it in the United States, buy it somewhere where they could get at it, where they could supply. All of those things, it erupted. I mean, literally, I was working 24 by 6. Uh, we had calls, we had a daily call at nine, at three, and then at 9 p.m. at night among senior management because of just, it was like incoming from all directions. And then PPP happened.
1: Well, the timeline between people, you know, non-essential workers don't get to go to work, essential workers have to stay, and then the city gets shut down, the country gets shut down, and then PPP was like kind of like a month-ish, give or take. Were you ever nervous about a, like a run on the bank? Were you nervous that everyone with a credit line was gonna come and just call for cash because they were gonna freak out? What do you what do you do in that scenario? When COVID was just starting to be
3: a, an emerging issue before the shutdown. Yeah, so like January, February, yeah. February. Yeah. You know, early February. We decided we just wanted to have a ton of cash. So we had Same, always, yeah. You know. We just had we just kept it in the Federal Reserve essentially which sounds like a lot of money, $3 billion of cash at all times, something like a two, three, kept our lines clean, because we knew it's possible that people are going to want to draw on cash. So we just wanted to be out there so there was no issues. And we have stayed so liquid, which is earning us nothing. I mean, literally, cash yeah. at the Fed is earning us nothing. It's just sitting there. We just felt we needed to be there. And thank, thank heavens, thank God we never needed it. PPP was a totally different story. That was, there. there's going to be a movie made about it at some point, I think.
1: And how was Signature involved in PPP? Or you guys, are people came to you for it and you were handling those PPP loans? So as you, as you
3: learned, just about the majority of our clients are small and medium-sized businesses who all qualified. Yeah. So essentially every single client of the bank applied for PPP. What happened was, is we said, it was overwhelming. I mean, it was truly overwhelming. It was discussed, I think, on like March 26, And by April 3rd, it, again, it was like a mushroom cloud. So what we did is we des- we decided to redeploy about 20% of all the employees of my colleagues, all of our colleagues, into working on PPP. So you might have been, an, you know, working as a... Um, and wire transfers, or client services, or cash management. We said, we're moving you to PPP. And we had people working literally all night, creating systems, taking the applications, so that we could get, and I'm really, I'm, I'm so proud to say this, we got every applica- every compliant application through. That was our motto, is that we wanted to get everyone through, and we did, and that's the way you actually build Client loyalty is because people realized. I mean, people were, were filling out applications and talking to senior vice presidents of the bank at three a.m. I mean, I was up. Behind. Everyone I was scared. My,
1: people were nervous. They
3: they businesses were, were on the line.
0: out. Yeah. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B 2 B.
1: How do you? Uh, and this ties into your book, which I have right here, um, which is which is a lot to it. First of all, it is five hundred pages. Easy reading, though. Yeah, no, it looks good, but it is. I mean, this is this is a good amount of, of book, and it seems like you touch on a lot of different things. What what pushed you to to write? You, you run a bank, yeah. Like you run like a real like a big bank. They have a couple billion dollars at the Fed so you can have good liquidity. Like that's- 61 that's, billion in assets. But then you sat around and you wrote a 500-page book for the betterment of mankind. Why would you Why'd you do that?
3: I think for most people, there's two important days. One, when they're born because then they have a shot. And the second is when they figure out why they're supposed to be here. You know, yeah. and for some of us, there's multiple reasons why we're supposed to be here, what we're supposed to do. And this book was actually in me and I needed to get it out of me because- people would come to me. So I'm, I'll freely admit in New York, I'm a believer I believe in God. And people know that in the bank and know that among clients, you know that among my friends. And they would ask me things, questions like, well, you seem like a reasonable sort of guy. You actually built this bank. And isn't God just like sort of Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny? So I started reading the new atheist books that all these folks had read. Richard Dawkins, The God Delusions, Christopher Hitchens, Why God Poisons Ever, Why God Isn't Great, Daniel Dennett, Letter to a Christian Nation, etc. And I looked for a book that would respond to them and I didn't really find a good answer. So when nobody is doing something that's the time when I try to act. And I started writing this book and I'm so glad nobody told me it would take 5 years for me to write this book yeah, I, probably, never would have done it. I would have never done it. <laughs> but I started and I'm a persistent sort of, you know, dogged fellow. So once I started and I had the bone, you know, I wasn't going to let go.
1: And so it took 5 years. When did you and we're getting a little off topic, but it's it's curious to me when did you know that you believed in God? I gotta give
3: you a little bit of backstory. My father is a Holocaust
1: survivor, was a Holocaust survivor, he
3: passed away. My father was 13 years old in Sveks, Lithuania, when the Nazis marched in and they murdered his father, his brothers, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins. His mother had already died in childbirth, giving birth to my, his brother. And he was taken for slave labor, and he was liberated from Dachau. He was less than seventy pounds. He was probably days, weeks—certainly not months—away from death. And he made it to Chicago. It's a long story. We don't. <laughs> he made it to Chicago. He got married and had a son. And my father had this very interesting belief that it, that in a way, that's the backstory to this book. Is that he knew there was God because had this cup with an S been not here, but Six inches over there, my father would have been dead. Had my father been standing one position forward, one position behind, one position back, or one position forward, he would have been murdered. There were so many little things that were so amazing that they were so different he'd be dead. That he knew in his heart of hearts that there was a God who got him to Chicago. On the other hand, he was angry at God because he survived. But what about his father who who was murdered? You know, few feet away from him, and his, and again, all of his family. So he had this relationship with God that clearly I, you know, inherited some of the, I don't want to call it trauma, but some of this questioning is how can we believe in a God when things like the Holocaust happened? Would a good God allow that? But on the other hand, that's evil from people. So I've been struggling with this all my life. And that's why it spilled out into this book, trying to understand that problem. Because to my mind, to be a non-believer, there's a lot of questions to be answered, but to be a believer, the hardest question is, how can a good God let Things like the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide—I mean, I can go on and on—happen, and yeah, that's course. a hard
1: question. It is, I think free will exists. Were you religious when you were growing up or is this something you came into later? It's
3: something I, my father had this belief of God. He was, so we went to synagogue, but during services, he and and I noticed this among other Holocaust survivors, during services, they would chat. Uh, when the rabbi gave his sermon, they would doze off. Afterward, they would go and have a lachaim, you know, have a little hey. schnapps afterward but he made sure, they all made sure their sons and daughters were barred by bat mitzvah so he felt it was important to have a connection but he was so angry at god he couldn't actually pray so easily because he was giving god the silent treatment and i think god got it you know i think god gets that yeah my father had some things to be angry about and but i will say this the one thing i've also learned and and one thing i try to do in particularly section 5 of my book is explain how to read the bible because just being given the king james version yeah is really tough yes but if you read stories where judah is willing to become a slave so that his brother can be freed where esther has to convince the king to save the jews and takes on basically the risk of her life to do so all sorts of stories of heroism, of what what is really going on in the Bible, what is really being tried to convey. It's such an ancient book that we need a little bit of background to, to, to really engage with it. So I find sort of the less people know about the Bible, the less they like it. And when you give them some introduction to it, they really recognize, what a rich book. No wonder this has been around for 3,000 years. Because before the Bible, things were pretty bad. You know, is the God King Pharaoh who could chop off anybody's head. And he was the decider of whether you were good, you were bad. And he was the conduit for the real God, Ra, or whoever it was at the time. And the thing people have forgotten, and this is one of the, one of the, uh, the things I try to explain, is that the whole 20th century was a catalog of God, King, Pharaohs. Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, Hitler—they use the same tropes as Pharaoh.
1: Yeah, doesn't change.
3: Parades, myths, theater—all of course backed up by secret informers and powerful armies. And because they were, they established themselves as king. That's why, as God King. That's why Stalin had his his image put by the Soviet Space Agency into space. And it's not just at a macro level, it's at the level of our intimate encounters. So how did Kevin Spacey and Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose, and unfortunately that there's a very long list, how did they get away with what they got away with? Well, they set themselves up in their industries as idols unquestioned and unquestionable. Just like Pharaoh, what Charlie Rose said was the truth at CBS. What Harvey Weinstein said was the truth. And in the same way that the God-King Pharaoh could decide if you live or die... you wouldn't question it. Harvey Weinstein, based on his whim, could decide if your career was going to work and if it wasn't going to work. And it's hard to stand up to idolatry, but thankfully people did. Thankfully they have in the past, and and that's what the Bible tries to explain. And that's why, in the middle of banking,
1: I thought, I gotta try to take my shot to explain this how does religion then play back into into the bank you've just written a 500 page book called in good faith questioning religion and atheism do you bring religion and faith into signature bank
3: so here's how we i do do that and we do it two things first i believe that the golden rule comes from the bible don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done unto yourself so when ppp happened we immediately knew some of the mega banks were prioritizing clients. Right. If you were bigger, if you were in the private bank, if you were this, if you were that, we'll take care of you. We had the saying, and I sort of hinted at this before no compliant client left behind. So we moved everybody from the bank. We stayed up all night. I was up even myself, you know, I, I couldn't, I wasn't even that productive in the middle of the night, but we were up in the middle of the night. If you looked at my emails from 2 to 5 a.m., You wouldn't know it was 2 to 5 p.m. We said, everybody, if they need a $25,000 loan, they're going to get the same attention as the company that needs a $9 million loan. So it's the golden rule. And in our, we have like every bank, well, you're you're familiar from your father and your brother, a standards of conduct. So it's, you can't see it, but I'm, I'm holding up mine. It's like a half an inch thick, right? I looked at this and I said, you know what? Let's change it so that people get this. So the first paragraph says, this is a very long standards of conduct. You're going to have to read it because you're required to do so by bank regulation. But if you do one thing, you're going to keep yourself out of trouble and, and the bank out of trouble. Don't treat any colleague, client, vendor, counterparty, or anybody you come into contact with within your role in the bank other than the way you would want to be treated. The rest is the commentary of the next 50 or 75 pages. You got to read it and sign it. But if you just do that, you're going to be okay and we're going to be okay. It's not that we don't turn down loans. We turned on plenty of loans, but we do it in a way which is humane. We try very hard not to treat anybody, not to mislead anybody, not to do anything that other people wouldn't expect the answer to their, the answer to every question isn't going to be yes but they want to be treated like a human being they don't want to be treated like a dust rag and that's the way that I try to bring my faith into the bank now that's not to say the people who don't who aren't believers can't do the same thing because anybody who believes in the golden rule I can make common cause with I think they can be moral but I think the essence of idolatry is essentially and self-deification is saying, I'm a little more important than the other person. That's clearly what Charlie Rose and Mal Lauer and Harvey Weinstein, I can do stuff to other people that I wouldn't want done unto myself. And of course, Stalin and uh, those other people, the world leaders who killed millions, wouldn't have wanted what they did done to them. And so I think there's a real essence there. And hopefully that comes through. Hopefully that comes through. I mean, I will say this, too, when when uh, we had we unfortunately had a number of people stricken with covid in the bank and I called everyone personally because I you you just that's the time you need to do things like that. You need to call. I, it was if they were senior vice president or teller. I tried to reach them at home and I don't know that it helped them, but. They at least knew that they were as important as anybody else.
0: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why, if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply.
2: As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking?
1: How did you keep your level of confidence in you know your ability to get all of this done and take care of your staff and take care of your people and manage your assets when going through a complete market reset, like at the end of March, right? When the Dow is selling off 10,000 points, everyone's freaking out, there is no PPP yet. There's talks of it, it's not getting approved. Was there a moment of being scared at that time? And would you compare it at all to when you started? Like in 2001 because 2001 was also a very tumultuous year i mean you started this bank i mean in 9 11.
3: if you had told me that the world trade centers would be felled that interest rates would go from six and a half for six and a quarter percent when we open to one percent which is what happened and we would go through the worst recession we had gone through ever in new york it's was much much worse in 2001 than in 2008 here in new york i don't know i might have had second thoughts personally but I will say this: I, It was a continuing emergency when we opened the bank, and I really felt like it was a continuing emergency. And I was so focused and, and in the flow of what needed to be done, think you know, frankly, put, trying to put one foot in front of the other, as was the whole management team, that it helped us get through it. Had we sat back and and taken in the, you know a lot of deep breaths and panicked, that would have been bad. So we didn't we. Thankfully, didn't do that, but there were plenty of opportunities to panic just because of the state of the world.
1: Do you think your level of focus is what helped you uh, stay confident? You know, a big part of you know what we do as brokers and salespeople and entrepreneurs and part of this podcast, right? And it's called Big Money Energy because I, in my head, when I was young in New York with no money and I was trying to figure out what to do and it was figure it out or move home. A big difference that I saw was the people who were successful and who were making it, they were very focused, almost like they had blinders on, one foot in front of the other, like you just said, and they had a, they had a level of confidence to them, even if they were completely, if they had no confidence. And so I'm thinking about you starting a bank. 9-11 happens. Right, and then you've got interest rates tank, and then New York slowly comes back, and then Lehman falls, and then you go through the Great Recession, and then everything's kind of okay, and then a few years later, then COVID happens. You seem to me like you have some, like you have an unshakable confidence, uh, as well as a strong energy to you, and I could tell from your book, which is also why I wanted you to come here and you know we meet and and, and you know tell your story for all the listeners. Um, but how did were you born that way? How did you get there? how did you how did you convince yourself to do these things that you've done and get through these three very difficult times in in New York and in banking well first of all and i and my father
3: may re- re- his memory is a blessing to me he modeled resilience i mean there's nobody he he was he was next to death and came back and built a life so he had he did something which was <laughs> i was growing up if ever I would complain and I would occasionally I'd compl- uh, you know, complain about this that or the other thing he'd look at me and he'd say it's not the concentration camps so that, that sort of set the standard where okay you know I can I will have to get on from this because this is clearly not this is clearly overcomeable. I will say this I do look at these strain at downturns as an opportunity so when we opened the bank, we had a little party for everybody who started the bank with us. And I got up and spoke, and I gave a rah-rah. And this just came out of my, extemporaneously, I said, "When it, my goal is that in five years, we're gonna be a $5 billion bank, and in 10 years, we're gonna be a $10 billion bank. Now, of course, the, that meant we would be even growing slower in the second five years, but it didn't, that's what I said. Fast forward five years, we're a $3.8 billion bank, so we hadn't hit our goal, but then, during the great financial crisis we had been doing the right things we had stayed conservative and we grew from 3.8 we grew to be a 14.8 billion dollar bank by 2011 may 1st 2011. in the worst time we had grown 11 billion dollars in that second in that second from 3.8 to 14.8 because you made yourself the choice we made ourselves a choice so fast forward to what happened now december 31st of 2019, we were a 49 billion dollar bank, and we were really proud of that. June 30th, we were a 61 billion dollar bank, and the reason is is that because because we had done PPP, because people, I have to tell you, I've they never to seen go a to business you. come in so fast as after PPP. Because a, the people who we got loans for said, "I got to move the rest of my accounts here." Yeah. B, no, we heard they we heard, heard about, CNT, about yeah. it. And so people would start coming to us. We have never opened as many accounts yeah. as we did when we started. The pace was just ridiculous because during these sorts of times, yeah. got to be. And look, people were calling me at all hours and, and customer service. Yes, client service. We we actually have a term. We don't actually call anybody a customer. We we say everybody's a client.
1: We want to promote them. the phrase when I, when we reached out to you to the this is called big money energy. What did you think? What does that phrase mean to you? That big green phrase right behind my head. Look,
3: I personally don't idolize money. I think that what's important about money is what it can accomplish, and I think having money so that you can do good, that's what gives me energy. That's what otherwise I could just hang out and have pina coladas. I yeah. mean, you know, thank God. <laughs> but I don't wanna do that, I wanna do more. And that gives you the energy and the power to do more and to do more philanthropically, to do more in all sorts of different ways.
1: I love that, it's, it's do good energy. What would you tell your, your 20 year old self if you go back in time and talk to you at 20? Always make sure to treat people right. I mean, there were a few times when
3: I wish I had taken a deep breath and said, let me look at it from the other person's perspective and not reacted in the same way. I would've, I, I definitely wish I would've done that a few times and that's my big regret. I did it a few times where I just, I did put myself first in, in terms of relationships or others with folks and I regret that deeply. And I would tell everybody to do it, it's that golden rule. I had it in mind, but I didn't really abide by it every, every yeah. time I should've.
1: Do you mind if I hit you with some random personal questions? Go for it. What's your favorite movie? Oh, The Castle. The it's Castle? an Australian
3: movie. Every single line you just in jumped this it out. movie so is random. just so great. I mean, there's not one line. Who's that's not, in it? I don't, I don't remember, actually. Nobody <laughs> but it's your big, favorite movie. It's my favorite movie. I, but nobody big and nobody that you would know. But it's you can get it on Netflix or wherever. The Castle. It's a
1: great movie. Okay. What's your favorite
3: quote? T- clearly, um, don't treat anyone else the way you wouldn't want to be treated yourself. That hill elder Sage said that. Who's the worst boss you've ever had? Oh, boy. You know, thankfully, I haven't had really bad bosses. I had one boss who, I don't want to mention his name, he's passed away, who I I think didn't treat folks the right way. But I've actually been blessed to have good bosses. That Maybe that's something that uh, help, that certainly helped my career and my life a lot. What's your favorite word?
1: Good. Good. Got it. If you could be an animal, what animal would you be? You know, I read an article, I've read a book about, and I'm blanking on the author's name,
3: about trying to imagine being something other than human, trying to be a bat, about the hard, con- the problem of hard consciousness. And so I actually, I, I have to tell you, I don't know. It's impossible for me to imagine to be you, and much less imagine to be me. And, and the one thing I have learned in life is that People think they understand other people. They don't even actually understand themselves really that well. And so to imagine me being any other being, I I can't really do that.
1: My last question for you, for the man who started a bank a handful of months before 9-11 and has grown it uh, into something that has been pretty monumental. What's your guilty pleasure?
3: Oh, it's something I call a special. It's... A hot brownie.
1: Ah, oh, this is, is this chocolate your chip
3: ice cream, okay, or vanilla ice cream, but really good ice cream, okay, topped with some great dark chocolate chips and chocolate liqueur. I like Haven chocolates, dark chocolate liqueur. There's others. That's my guilty pleasure.
1: <laughs> Damn, is this like a once a week thing? Oh. It depends on the week, you know, in the beginning, I think I was
3: having it during March, April, May.
1: I was having it nightly. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember those times. I remember those times. But listen, uh, thank you so much for coming. This has been great getting to know you. Uh, And for for all our listeners, please check out Scott Shea's book, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. And if you are a small or medium sized business, make sure you check out the bank. Scott, it's an honor. Thank you so much for coming through. If you're ready to take action today, based on Scott Shea's entire blueprint for how he got to where he is? Go to bigmoneyenergy.com slash podcast to download an action plan I put together for you as well as the show notes. That's bigmoneyenergy.com slash podcast. Find more podcasts like Big Money Energy on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Big Money Energy is hosted by me, Ryan Serhant. It's produced by Mike Coscarella and Joe Laresca and executive produced by Lindsay Hoffman.
2: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80 live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City.